Chapter 5 of With Cortez in Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. With Cortez in Mexico by George Alfred Henty. Chapter 5 Shipwrecked. For six days the swan sailed westward before a gentle wind. Then clouds were seen rising in the north and spreading with great rapidity across the horizon. We are in for a tempest, Captain Reuben said. Never have I seen the clouds rising more rapidly. Get her sail off her standing as quickly as possible. The crew fell to work, and in a very few minutes the swan was stripped of the greater part of her canvas but quickly as the men worked the storm came up more rapidly and the crew had but half finished their work when with a roar and turmoil that almost bewildered them the gale struck the vessel her head had been laid to the south so that the wind should take her astern and it was well that it was so for had it struck her on the beam she would assuredly have been capsized even had not a rag of canvas been shown, for the wind would have caught her lofty forecastle and poop. As it was, she plunged heavily forward, quivering as if from a blow. Then her bluff bows bore her up, and with a leap she sprang forward and sped along before the gale. I have seen as sudden a squall among the Greek islands, Captain Reuben shouted in the mate's ear, but never elsewhere. I hope that this may prove as short as do the gales in that quarter. I hope so, the mate replied, for we know not how far the land may be distant. But though the captain knew it not, they had been caught in one of those furious gales that were afterwards the terror of the Spaniards, blowing for a week or ten days without intermission and being the cause of the wreck of many a stout ship. For six days the swan sailed westward before a gentle wind. Then clouds were seen rising in the north and spreading with great rapidity across the horizon. We are in for a tempest, Captain Reuben said. Never have I seen the clouds rising more rapidly. Get her sail off her standing as quickly as possible. The crew fell to work, and in a very few minutes the swan was stripped of the greater part of her canvas. But quickly as the men worked, the storm came up more rapidly, and the crew had but half finished their work when, with a roar and turmoil that almost bewildered them, the gale struck the vessel. Her head had been laid to the south, so that the wind should take her astern, and it was well that it was so, for had it struck her on the beam, she would assuredly have been capsized, even had not a rag of canvas been shown, for the wind would have caught her lofty forecastle and poop. As it was, she plunged heavily forward, quivering as if from a blow. Then her bluff bows bore her up, and, with a leap, she sprang forward and sped along before the gale. I have seen as sudden a squall among the Greek islands, Captain Reuben shouted in the mate's ear, 
but never elsewhere. I hope that this may prove as short as do the gales in that quarter. I hope so, the mate replied, for we know not how far the land may be distant. But though the captain knew it not, they had been caught in one of those furious gales that were afterwards the terror of the Spaniards. Blowing for a week or ten days without intermission, and being the cause of the wreck of many a stout ship, the sea got up rapidly, and the wind seemed to increase in fury as night fell, and for three days the ship ran before it. The waste was frequently deluged with water, and it required six men at the helm to keep her straight before the wind. The crew were worn out with fatigue and want of sleep, for running as they were in this unknown sea, none could say what might happen or when land might be sighted ahead. The captain never left the poop, he and the mates taking their places by turn with the men at the helm, for the slightest error in steering might have caused the vessel to broach to, in which case nothing could have saved her. Sheltered as was the caboose, it was found impossible to keep a fire alight, and officers and men alike had to content themselves with biscuits and draughts of ale. The vessel rolled till her bulwarks were under water, and the yard-arms at times dipped into the sea, and the men on deck were forced to lash themselves to some standing object to retain their footing. The captain occasionally made his way forward to the forecastle, where the men not on duty were huddled together, and spoke cheeringly to them, saying that the gale could not last much longer, and that as the swan had weathered it so far, she would hold on to the end. At the commencement of the storm a tremendous rain had fallen, but when this had ceased the sky had cleared up, and for the last two days the sun had shone out brightly, and not a cloud had been seen. When morning broke on the fourth day, a cry of dismay broke from the wearied men on deck, for ahead could be seen land stretching away on both bows. The news brought the crew from below, and they clustered on the forecastle, gazing in the direction of this new danger. "'We must try and get some sail on her mizzen, standing,' the captain said. "'Our only chance is to bring her head to wind.' "'We can try, Captain, but I fear that you will never bring her round.' "'It is our only chance,' the captain repeated, and with a loud shout he called for some hands to come aft. The mizzen was shaken out, and, as soon as the sheets were hauled aft, the helm was put down. A cry burst from the crew as she came round, for as the wind took her on the beam she lay farther and farther over. A great wave struck her broadside, sweeping the bulwarks away as if they had been paper and carrying a number of the crew off the forecastle into the sea. Still farther over she went, and all thought that she would capsize. When there were a series of reports, like musket-shots, as the lashings of the shrouds parted, this was followed instantly by a crash as the mizzen mast snapped off two feet above the deck. Relieved of the strain, the swan righted somewhat, Another great wave swept over her forecastle, still further diminishing the number of the crew, 
but it carried her head round. She came up onto an even keel and started again on her mad course before the wind. "'Go forward, Pengarvan, and see how many hands we have lost,' the captain said. "'Not that it makes much difference, for they have but gone a short time before the rest of us, for nothing short of a miracle can save us now.' It could now be seen that the coast was steep and rocky, and that the waves were breaking with tremendous force upon it. It was but about four miles distant, and in less than half an hour they would be upon it. "'We must try to anchor, standing.' The first mate shook his head. "'We will try, Captain, but our anchors will never hold her in the teeth of this gale. If they did, the hawsers would go like pack-thread. I am afraid so, standing, but there is nothing else to do.' The first mate went forward, and he and Pengarvan saw the anchors got in readiness, and the cables ranged along so as to run out with perfect freedom. Then Pengarvan made his way aft again to the poop. "'Do you mean to cut away the mast, Captain?' The captain nodded. "'I wouldn't, sir,' the mate went on. "'She will never hold, mast or no mast, and if it stands—' we make a shift to run her head foremost on the rocks, and this will give us a better chance than if she drifts broadside on. You are right, Pengarvan. Yes, it will be better to leave it standing. When within a quarter of a mile of the shore, the helm was again put down, and, as the vessel came partly round, the anchors were let go. The hawsers ran out rapidly, and the topsail, which was the only sail on her, was let go, the wind catching it and tearing it into ribbons as it was loosed. There was a jerk and a surge as the anchors brought her up, but at the same moment a great wave struck her head. The cables parted, and she again swung round towards the shore. "'It is all over with us, my lad,' the captain said to Roger, who was standing quietly beside him. "'God forgive me. I have brought you all here to die.' it is not your fault father it was all for the best and we knew when we started that there were perils before us good-bye my lads we will die as we have lived brave men and may god have mercy on us all now roger obey my last orders go forward and climb up to the end of the bowsprit it may be that if she strikes you may be able to leap forward on to the rocks they are somewhat lower just ahead than elsewhere. But I do not want to be saved if no one else is, father, Roger cried passionately. You have always obeyed me heretofore, the captain said quietly, and you will do so now. Go forward at once and do as I say. God bless you, my boy. He clasped Roger in his arms in a moment's close embrace and then pointed forward. Roger's eyes were blinded with tears as he obeyed the order. The bowsprit in those days did not, as now, run out almost horizontally from the ship's bow, but stood up like a mast, leaning somewhat over the bow, and carried a yard and small square sail upon it. Roger climbed up as far as the yard, and then, aiding himself by the halyards, swarmed up until he reached the cap. When he did so, the vessel was but little more than a hundred yards from the shore. The water was deep up to the rocks, for the waves struck on these unbroken, 
flying up in masses of spray which flew far over the land on his lofty post thirty feet above the forecastle and forty-five above the water roger was nearly level with the top of the rock ahead and as the vessel rose on the waves could see a flat land extending far inland he looked down two or three of the sailors had followed him as high as the yard and many others were gathered on the forecastle some were kneeling in prayer others had thrown themselves down despairingly on the deck but most were standing looking forward with set faces at the rocky barrier so close at hand roger looked aft the men at the tiller had quitted it now and gone forward standing and pengarvan were standing one on each side of the captain the latter took off his cap and waved it to his son and the mates lifted their hands in token of adieu a cry from below caused roger as he returned the salute to look round they were but a ship's length from the rocks another moment a great wave lifted the vessel and on its crest she went thundering forward the rocks seemed to leap up against the spar to which roger clung it snapped off just below his feet then a great volume of water and spray shot up from below and he was thrown high into the air the wind caught him and carried him away inland and he fell with a crash that left him senseless it was long before he recovered consciousness as soon as he did so he crawled on his hands and knees to the edge of the cliff and looked down the swan had disappeared not a sign of her remained not so much as a floating timber showed on the surface of the water roger crawled back again for some distance and then threw himself down and wept despairingly he lay there for hours until the heat of the sun blazing almost vertically down roused him then he got onto his feet and looked round in front of him stretched a slightly undulating country patches of maize here and there showed that it was cultivated and in the distance he saw a large village with buildings of a size that proved that the people had made some advance towards civilization slowly and painfully for he was greatly bruised by his fall he made his way to the nearest maize patch and ate several heads of green corn then he started for the village when within a few hundred yards of it he came upon three women who were coming out with baskets on their heads they paused as he approached them and then with a cry of astonishment and fear turned and ran towards the village their cries brought a number of people to the doors among these were many men who had caught up spears and bows and arrows at the alarm seeing but one person approaching in a garb altogether strange to them they stood in surprise as he came up their wonder heightened at perceiving that his color was altogether different from their own and they dropped their threatening weapons and stood as if paralyzed by wonder roger had not faltered in his step as he saw them issue out death had no terror for him now that his father and all his friends were gone and he was altogether reckless of what befell him the fearlessness of his demeanor added to the effect produced by his appearance his cap was gone and the rays of the sun falling upon his fair hair added to the effect produced by his white skin 
the natives taking him for a supernatural being bowed themselves to the ground before him in an attitude of adoration the cries and uproar that but a minute before had sounded in the village suddenly ceased and were succeeded by the hush of deep awe roger walked on between the prostrate natives and seated himself on a stone at the door of a hut the natives gradually rose to their feet and approached him timidly he made signs that he wanted to drink for a raging thirst had been induced by the heat one of the natives ran into a hut and reappeared with a bowl filled with a liquid which he humbly presented to roger the latter patted his head in token of thanks and then took a long drink of the contents of the bowl these were totally unlike anything he had before tasted being poke a slightly fermented drink obtained from the juice of the agave most useful of all the vegetable productions of central america a native who was distinguished by his dress from the rest now gave an order and in a short time two women approached bearing a tray with some flat cakes of fine bread and fruits of different kinds more to please the natives than because he was hungry for he felt little inclination for food roger partook of some of these the chief then harangued him at considerable length when he had finished roger who had stood up while he was addressing him said i do not know a single word of what you are saying to me but i thank you for your kindness he then shook hands with the chief to whom that form of greeting was evidently new and patted him on the shoulder the chief then conducted him to a large house it was no higher than the rest but was built of stone well fitted together the roof was roughly thatched and could roger thought afford but a poor shelter in time of rain he did not know that except at the commencement of a storm rain was of comparatively rare occurrence upon the coast inside the house showed signs of comfort there were some seats decorated with carving a finely woven mat covered the floor arms and utensils hung from the walls several of the natives evidently persons of consideration in the village followed the chief in some girls and women came in from an interior room and saluted the stranger with the greatest respect they examined him timidly one of the younger girls touching his hand gently as if to make sure that it was skin and not some strange covering that gave it its color roger took off his jacket which was by this time dry and turned up the sleeve of his shirt as he did so a general exclamation of surprise and admiration broke from the natives at the whiteness of the skin which was far more striking to them than the bronzed hue of his face and hands the chief made various signs which roger at last understood to be a question as to whence he had come he pointed in the direction of the sea and tried to signify that he had arrived from a very long distance an hour passed and roger was beginning to wonder what the next move would be when a native entered and saluting the chief said something to him the women and children at once retired a few minutes afterwards the chief went to the door and motioned roger to accompany him coming down the street of the village was a procession 
At its head walked two persons, evidently of high rank. They wore mantles, falling from their shoulders nearly to the ground, ornamented with designs executed in brightly colored feathers. They had circlets of gold round their heads, and heavy necklaces and bracelets of the same metal. Beneath the mantles they wore short petticoats of soft white material. Their spears and their arms were carried behind them by attendants. Behind these came a number of men and women, walking in regular order, carrying bowls of fruit, trays of cooked food, and other offerings. Roger saw at once that they must have come from a place of importance, which must be near at hand, as they had doubtless set out upon the receipt of a message dispatched by his present entertainer. He guessed that the report must have been a favorable one of him, and that the natives were impressed with the idea that he was a superior being. It was, therefore, needful for him to comport himself so that this impression should be confirmed. The chiefs bowed profoundly as they approached him, stooping so far forward that one hand touched the earth and was then carried to their forehead. Roger did not understand the meaning of this, but he bowed graciously, as if accepting the homage that was offered. The bearers then advanced and placed the offerings on the ground. Among these was a mantle similar to that worn by the chiefs, but more richly embroidered. It struck Roger that, as his white skin excited so much admiration, it would be as well to show it. He was, too, somewhat ashamed of his garments, which were much worn, had turned a dingy hue from the sun and salt water, and had, moreover, shrunk much from their recent immersion. Taking up the robe, therefore, he motioned to the chiefs to stay where they were, and, returning into the room, stripped to his waist, and then, throwing the mantle over his shoulders, returned to the entrance. Something like a shout of welcome saluted him. The whiteness of his skin, as seen through the open mantle, astonished the natives, and they accepted his assumption of the garment, with which he had been presented, as a sign of the benevolent intentions of this supernatural visitor towards them. The ambassadors now made signs in the direction from which they had come, and seemed to ask him if he were willing to accompany them. He nodded his assent, and in a few minutes the procession again started, the chiefs taking their places, one on either side of him, and the villagers falling in behind. The women struck up a sort of chant, in which all except the chiefs joined. For an hour they kept on their way, and then, on ascending a small hill, a large town was seen. Tabasco, the chief said, pointing towards it. Roger repeated the word, and in doing so evidently gave much pleasure to the chiefs. As they approached the town, he could see many lofty buildings rising above it, and as they passed through a line of long palisades that surrounded the place, a body of men issued out to meet him. As they approached, they formed in order on each side of the road. All were armed with spears, tipped with sharp, shiny stones, and carried bows and arrows. They were dressed in doublets of thickly quilted cotton, capable of turning an arrow or resisting the thrust of a native spear. 
although they would offer but poor protection against English arrows or English weapons. As they entered the town, the streets were lined with similarly dressed soldiers, behind whom stood a crowd of natives, men and women, saluting their strange visitor with loud cries of welcome. The procession continued its way until it stopped before a large building, at the entrance to which stood an aged chief. His mantle was completely composed of feather-work, and plumes of feathers sprang from the golden fillet that encircled his head. Behind him were clustered a number of inferior chiefs. He welcomed Roger courteously but gravely, and Roger guessed at once that he was superior to the superstitions of his people, and that he viewed him with a certain amount of suspicion. Roger bowed and, taking off the jackknife which hung in its sheath from a string at his waist, drew it out and presented it to the chief. The latter was evidently greatly struck by the gift. Gold and silver he knew, but this bright and shining metal was altogether new to him. He examined it closely, felt the edge and point, and then handed it to the chiefs behind him to be examined by them. Roger saw by his manner that he had been favorably impressed, for the weapon was as strange and mysterious to him as the visitant. The chief undid a large gold necklace that he wore and offered it to Roger, who bowed and clasped it round his neck. The chief now led him inside the house, which was similar, but on a much larger scale, to that which he had before entered. Refreshments were placed before him. These he did not need, but thought it better to eat of them. While he was doing so, an animated conversation was maintained between the chief and his followers. After a time, the chief made signs to him to follow him, and conducted him to a smaller house close by, which he made signs to him that he was to consider as his own. Mats had been already spread on the ground, rugs made of quilted cotton for sleeping upon, piled in a corner, vases of flowers placed about the room, and all made ready for occupation. An old woman, followed by two young girls, came forward and saluted to the ground. They were slaves, whom the chief had appointed to wait upon the visitor. No sooner had the chief left than a perfect levy commenced and went on for hours, until it seemed to Roger that every man, woman, and child in the town must have called upon him. Most of them brought little presents as tokens of goodwill. Garlands of flowers were thrown round his neck, baskets of fruit, cakes made from maize flour, dishes of meat of various kinds, little trinkets of gold, baskets containing beans and many other eatable seeds, and a ground powder of brownish hue, of whose uses Roger was ignorant, but which he afterwards discovered to be cocoa, which furnished the most popular beverage of the natives. Not until it was quite dark did the stream of visitors cease. Then the old slave dropped a hanging across the door, and one of the young ones brought forward to Roger, who was utterly worn out with the fatigues of the day, a bowl of steaming cocoa and some cakes of fruit. Roger found the cocoa extremely palatable and wholly unlike anything he had ever before tasted, and it seemed to invigorate him greatly. 
after drinking he spread some of the quilted mats upon the floor and threw himself down upon them the old woman had lighted a lamp and withdrawn with the younger ones to an apartment behind which served as their sleeping-place as well as kitchen now that he was alone and had time to think roger broke down entirely was it possible that it was but this morning he was on board ship with his father and friends and that now all were gone gone forever and he was in a strange land cut off from all hope of return surrounded by people who if they were friendly to-day might yet for aught he knew slay him on the morrow for the time however his own fate occupied him but little his thoughts turned almost exclusively upon his father upon their voyages together his kindness and care for him the high hopes they had cherished when they started upon their voyage and above all upon his parting words and the last gesture of farewell just as the ship struck for hours roger lay and sobbed at last he heard a slight movement in the room and looking up saw one of the young slave girls regarding him with a look of deep pity to her as to every one else roger had appeared as a supernatural being come from they knew not whence but the lad's sobs had touched her human feelings and shown her that he had sorrows like herself her look brought a feeling of comfort and companionship to roger's heart and as on seeing that she was observed she turned timidly to retire he held out his hand to her she approached and knelt down beside him and taking his hand pressed it to her forehead she was a girl of some fourteen years old already according to mexican ideas a woman what is your name roger asked the girl looked at him wonderingly but shook her head roger thought a moment and then touched himself on the breast roger he said he repeated the word several times then he touched her lips and repeated roger and seeing what was expected she repeated the word in a soft voice he nodded again touched himself and said roger and then touched her she now saw what he meant it was his own name he had spoken and he now asked for hers malincha she said in her soft indian voice malincha he repeated you are a kind-hearted girl i can see that malincha and i hope we shall understand each other better one of these days i suppose you are a servant or a slave and are not in a much better condition than myself now you had better go and sleep he patted her on the shoulder pointed to the door by which she had entered closed his eyes as if in sleep and then said good night malincha the girl uttered some words he did not understand but as they ended with roger and with a nod of her head she stole silently away he supposed that it was something equivalent to his own good night greatly comforted by this little incident he rolled up one of the rugs as a pillow laid his head upon it and was almost instantaneously asleep he woke with a feeling of surprise the events of the previous day seemed to him but a dream and he looked round expecting to see the bulkhead of the little cabin he had occupied on board the swan but the first glance assured him of the reality of the dream 
and that he was alone among a strange people. He sprang at once to his feet, pulled aside a cloth that hung before an opening that served as a window, and let the rays of the sun stream in. "'I want some water, old dame,' he said in a loud voice. The old woman at once entered. Roger made signs by rubbing his hands together and passing them over his face and head that he wanted water. This the old woman brought, in a basin formed of the half of an immense gourd, and a soft cotton cloth with which to dry himself. Then she brought in a small pot filled with something which looked to him like fat, but which he afterwards found was extracted from a vegetable, and put it down by the side of the water. I suppose that this is some sort of soap, Roger said to himself, and found on trial, to his great satisfaction, that it made an excellent lather. After a good wash he felt greatly refreshed, and now attired himself completely in Mexican costume, a pile of garments of all sorts having been placed in one corner of the room. When he had finished, the two girls entered, with a tray containing cocoa, fruits, and bread. He was about to address Malincha by her name, but the girl kept her eyes fixed upon the ground, and it struck him that she did not wish her late visit to him to be known, as it might bring upon her a scolding from the old woman, whose voice he had more than once heard on the previous afternoon raised in shrill anger. He therefore began afresh, first naming himself, and then touching Malincha's companion. She did not at first understand, but Malincha said something in a low tone, and she then replied, Nishka. Roger repeated the name, and then touched Malincha, who at once gave her name. He next pointed to the contents of the bowl, and the girls replied together, Coca. Roger repeated the word several times, and then, in the same manner, learned the native names of the cakes and fruit. The old woman, hearing the voices, now came into the room. The girls spoke eagerly to her in their language, and when Roger touched her, she at once answered, Quizmoa. That is pretty well for a first lesson, Roger said. Now I will eat my breakfast. I suppose that if anyone in this place did not have a stare at me yesterday, they will be coming today. Visitors, indeed, soon began to arrive, and it was more than a week before the curiosity of the crowd was at all satisfied. But even this did not bring what Roger considered a terrible annoyance to an end, for the news had spread rapidly through all the country round of the strange white being who had come to Tabasco, and parties of visitors kept on arriving, some of them from a great distance. Roger, however, had made a good use of his tongue. He kept one or other of the girls always near him, and by touching the articles brought to him as presents, the garments and arms of his visitors, and the various objects in his room, he soon learned their names. Almost every day the chief sent for him for a talk, but as neither party could understand the other, these conversations generally ended by a sudden loss of temper on the part of the cazique, at being unable to obtain the information he required as to the origin of his visitor, and the object with which he had come to his country. 
having acquired a large number of the names of objects roger for a time came to a standstill then it struck him that by listening to what the old woman said to the girls and by watching what they did he might make a step farther in this way he soon learned bring me fetch me and other verbs when the old woman was present the two girls were silent and shy but as quizmoa was fond of gossiping and so was greatly in request among the neighbors who desired to learn something of the habits of the white man she was often out and the girls were then ready to talk as much as roger wished for a time it seemed to him that he was making no progress whatever with the language and at the end of the first month began almost to despair of ever being able to converse in it although by this time he had learned the name of almost every object then he found that perhaps as much from their gestures as from their words he began to understand the girls and in another month was able to make himself understood in turn after this his progress was extremely rapid as soon as malinche learned from him that he belonged to a great nation of white people living far away across the sea and that he had been wrecked in a ship upon the coast she warned him against telling these things to the chief they hold you in high honor she said because they think that you have come down from the sky and might do them grievous harm if they displeased you but if they knew that you were a man like themselves cast by chance upon their shores they would perhaps make you a slave or might put you to death in one of the temples therefore on this subject be always silent when the chief asks you questions shake your head and say that these things cannot be spoken of and that it might bring down the anger of the gods were their secret told the advice seemed good to roger and he followed it now that he was able to talk in his language the chief soon plied him with questions as to whence he had come but roger always shook his head when the subject was approached and said it is not good to talk of these things evil might come to the land i am here and that is enough i will tell you many things about other people who live far over the sea and who are very great and powerful when they go out they sit upon great animals which carry them easily at a speed much exceeding that at which a man can run they live in lofty dwellings and when they go to war are covered with an armor made of a metal so strong that arrows would not pierce it nor swords cut it they traverse the sea in floating castles and when they want to convey their thoughts to others many days journey away they make marks upon a thin white stuff they call paper and send it by a messenger and these marks tell him who receives it what the writer's thoughts are just the same as if he had spoken in their ears the hearing of such wonders as these reconciled the chief to his disappointment at not learning more about his visitor the knife roger had given him was a never-ending source of wonder to the cazique and those he permitted to inspect it gold and silver and copper they knew and also tin which they used for hardening the copper but this new metal was altogether strange to them it enormously exceeded copper in strength and hardness its edge did not like that of their own weapons blunt with usage 
and they could well understand that, if armor could be formed of it, it would be altogether unpierceable. For a time Roger was every day at the chief's house, and his narration afforded astonishment and wonder to the audiences that gathered round him. At the same time, Roger perceived that a difference of opinion existed among the principal men concerning him. Some believed, as at first, in his supernatural origin, and credited all that he told them, while others were of opinion that he was a man like themselves, only of different color, and that these tales were simply inventions designed to add to his importance. The fact that month after month passed without his exhibiting any supernatural powers or reproducing in any way the wonders of which he told them added gradually to the strength of the party hostile to him. Why should this god, if he were a god, have come to dwell at Tabasco only to learn the language and behave as an ordinary man? He had been kindly received. Why did he not bestow benefits in return? Were the fields more fruitful? Had any extraordinary prosperity fallen upon the people since his arrival among them? Had he taught them any of the arts of those people of whom he spoke? The gods always bestowed benefits upon those among whom they dwelt. He did not ever pay reverence to their gods, nor had he entered a temple to worship or sacrifice. How then could he be a god? Gradually this opinion gained strength, and Roger perceived that his popularity was decreasing. No longer were daily presents sent by the inhabitants of Tabasco. No longer did they prostrate themselves when he walked in the streets. His stories were received with open expressions of doubt and derision, and he saw that, ere long, some great change would take place in his condition. One morning, to his surprise, the chief, with six men, entered his chamber and ordered him to come out and accompany them instantly. Much surprised at the order, Roger at once went out. "'You must go away for a time,' the cazique said, "'but you shall return before long.' His guard conducted him eight or ten miles into the interior and established him in a hut, situated at a distance from any other dwelling." Three of them, by turns, kept watch night and day over him, refusing to answer any questions as to the cause of this singular conduct. Beyond being kept a prisoner, he had nothing to complain of, being well fed and treated with all courtesy. A fortnight later he was taken back to Tabasco as suddenly as he had left it. When he arrived there, he learned the reason of his being carried inland. A great floating castle filled with white men, had arrived at the mouth of the river and had opened a trade with the natives, exchanging glass beads, looking-glasses, and trinkets for gold ornaments and articles of Mexican workmanship. Their leader, he heard, was called Grijalva. The cazique had been afraid that, if Roger had heard that other white men were in the river, he would make an effort to join them, or if they heard that a man of their color was in the town, they would insist upon his being handed over to them. He had therefore hurried him away inland, and had issued the most stringent orders that none should, by signs or otherwise, acquaint the newcomers that a white man was in the town. 
a guard had been placed over the house in which roger had dwelt and none of those within it had been allowed to go out while the strangers were in the river these had sailed away the day before roger was fetched back he was not altogether disappointed at having missed the strangers who were of course spaniards for he wanted if possible to see something more of this beautiful country before he left and he was moreover more than doubtful as to the reception he should meet with at the spaniard's hands when by his ignorance of their language they discovered that he was a foreign intruder in what they considered their territory End of chapter five